Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. So at a certain point, I came to realization that I wanted to know that what was playing in my own heart, my own mind, and in my own theater. So I stopped watching this stuff because, not because I'm against it, because I love it so much that if I would continue, it would probably just turn me into a deadbeat who does nothing. All I ask is that people open their eyes, their hearts, and their minds to those around them. Try to see the humanity in the people that are living in your space, in your city, in your country. It seems that God has put me on a mission to build bridges between all people, and I hope I'm doing a good job. The main thing is that I should continue to do what I hope and believe that God wants me to do. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Shlomi Zions. Okay. Shlomi is a Hasidic Jew who travels around the world spreading love, teaching people what Hasidic Judaism really is all about. And he's my new favorite YouTuber. I find him quite interesting, incredibly relaxing to watch, and very refreshing. He's a young man, and I have watched his following grow week after week, and I have learned what being a Hasidic Jew is, I wouldn't say all about, but I would say, let's put it this way, I've learned a heck of a lot more than I knew, even growing up in New York around a lot of Hasidic Jews. When you live in New York, you know, you're surrounded by lots of different cultures and the Hasidic Jews are everywhere. And if you're not in that community, then you just sort of don't understand who these people walking by uh, with these like long, they call them prayer curls, these long twirly strands of hair that are hanging off the left and right side of their head. Or, you know, they're wearing black and white clothes and, you know, hats from Poland and, you know, like the eight, late 1800s. So it's, it's a fascinating culture. And I got to ask him, all kinds of questions about whether things are true or not true. As a kid, I heard that, you know, when a woman has her menstrual cycle, that 
They're not allowed to be in the same room. They're not allowed to touch each other. When they have sex, they have sex through a hole in the sheets. There's a million questions. Some of the answers, I was right. And some of them, I was way off base. So this is a episode, especially at this time in our, our history in the world, where we just don't understand each other. This is an opportunity for you to get to understand something that is likely probably very different than you. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Shlomi Zion. Shlomi, you are a hard man to track down. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you. We have so much to cover about who you are and what you do. And I think a good place for us to start would be to begin in Toronto in the 90s. You remember that time? Could you, I do. Could you describe what growing up in a Hasidic Jewish home was like in Toronto? So when people think of Toronto, they generally do not think of Hasidic Jews. It's a big city, not many Hasidic Jews, I'd say a couple hundred, but our family was one of those families that is a member of the Hasidic community in Toronto. Another difference between the Hasidic Jews of Toronto and the Hasidic Jews of elsewhere is that as a general rule, when, when a Hasidic community is living together in a certain place, they can sort of keep themselves very insulated and they have everything that they need to rely on for their community or for their families. It's all available right there in the neighborhood. In Toronto, that wasn't the case because there aren't that many Hasidic Jews. So it was more of a, I'd say we, we definitely mingled with the outer world more than uh, Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn would. Other than that, it was a very happy childhood. Thank God my parents really are awesome people. And uh, I'm, I'm happy I was born into the family that I was born into. Okay, do you come from a long line of Hasidic Jews or is it just maybe one or two generations? So that's a really good question. The honest truth is I don't know exactly. I know that in back in the old country in Poland, our family were definitely very religious. I'm not sure if they were Hasidic or not. I think they probably were, but I, I'm not sure because I, I never met them. As the family moved to the United States and Canada and on both sides, so more on the Canadian side, we had uh, we had family that became less religious, you know, as they as they moved to Canada. But my dad and his brother became Hasidic when they were teenagers, and obviously that was passed on to me. Okay, so a lot of people who are listening to the show, uh, whether they're in North America or around the world, they have seen a Hasidic Jew because when they, you know, for those that are watching uh, by video, they can see your your payas, your is that how you say it, your your hair. Yeah. Okay, and they, you know, they may say like, I don't know, I've I've seen I've seen someone who looks like that before. I think they're Jewish, and and that sort of like is where it ends for them. They don't know much more than that. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you are doing such a beautiful job of explaining what your religion is all about and demystifying what has been sort of, I don't want to use the word secretive, but using, but the word like sort of more to themselves, I think is popping in my, in my minds of just not understanding what it is. So let's 
Let's start from the beginning. Maybe you can just cover some general background about the religion. In what ways would you say being a Hasidic Jew is different than being somebody who's Jewish but not Hasidic? So number one, it's just to be clear, it's all the same religion. Okay. All Jews are Jews. What happened was that in the, I believe it was the mid-16th century, there was, or maybe it was the 17th century, I'm not great with dates in history, but you get the idea. It's at least, uh, it's about 300 years old. There was a rabbi named the Baal Shem Tov, and he lived in Ukraine. At some point, he realized that Judaism was becoming very dry. It was, there were, you know, there were all sorts of new things going on. There was the Enlightenment, which ultimately became Reformed Judaism. There's a lot of stuff happening in the Jewish community, and he felt that Jewish life needed some enthusiasm, needed uh, an injection of of positivity and some new energy. So he started this Hasidic movement, which is basically the word Hasid. It refers to somebody who does goes above the letter of the law, goes above and beyond to do more. So as a general rule, Hasidic Jews try to serve God with joy, with all their hearts, and do whatever they can to make the world a better place in the service of God and uh, for humanity. For people who, you know, maybe have a little bit more of an understanding of what Hasidic Jews are, but are confused about certain things that they may have heard or they've seen on TV or they've maybe, you know, conflated in some way, I'm going to pick two or three things that my listeners, when I mentioned I'm doing an interview with you, said, ask them about this. So I'll I'll throw out uh, three of them. The first one is for 12 days a month, a man and a woman cannot touch each other. True, false? And if true, why? Partially true. Okay. So according to uh, the halacha, which is the Jewish law, which all Orthodox Jews, or generally, as far as we know, they follow. Obviously, it's an honor system, right? So what, what you follow, what you don't follow is really between you and God. It's no one else's business. But according to the halacha, which is the Jewish law, a married couple, when a woman is on her period, so they, the husband and wife will not touch each other. That is true. Now, additionally, according to the halacha, any man uh, will not touch any woman who is not related to him, meaning if it's not his wife or sister, mother or daughter, he is not allowed to touch her period. So no handshakes, no hugs, no high fives, nothing. So that's why I'm saying partially true because... If it's a married couple, yes, that would be true. If the woman got her period, then they would not be touching each other for approximately 12 days. Well, I guess during COVID, that's actually not so uh, not so difficult to do. I mean, we've gotten used to not touching anybody these days. So that, that one's not so hard. But what about Hasidic women cannot show their hair in public? True, false, and if true, why? So one second, let's go back because we didn't, I don't think we, we finished answering the, the first question. Okay. Um, the reason behind this not touching is there's obviously a mystical reason for why this time is chosen to be when the woman has her period. But the general idea is, and this I can explain to you, is that in the Torah and in Judaism, we believe that everything is great in moderation. So if a man and woman were to be together all the time, eventually things would get boring. And that could lead, lead to issues. So let's make the separation. Let's have a time where we can build up. Um, uh, it's sort of like distance makes the heart grow fonder in a way. Yeah, sure. But also like it builds up the, 
uh, the longing, the, the, for, uh, for, for the, the anticipation, the, the anticipation, uh, the longing, all that stuff, it builds it up. And then the idea is that when they get together again, they experience the joy of their wedding night. You know, this is why I love you because what I, what I saw when I, when I hear these things, I'm like, well, that sounds crazy. Why can't I touch my wife for 12 days? This is nuts. But after, <laughs> after listening to you, I'm like, I think that would make me want to be be more intimate. I think that would make me be more excited to be with her. So this is interesting. Okay, let's move on to hair. That's another big one. You are married to Mushki. Is that her name? Okay. All right. So you can see Mushki's hair, but Mushki can't go out into the grocery store and show her hair to anybody. But she replaces it with a beautiful wig. That one's confusing me. Yeah, so I like to say she can show her hair, but she may not. Again, this is a this is a, a personal choice that I'd say ninety nine percent of the people make. That is the law. But again, nobody's standing over her with a stick telling her that she can't show her hair. It's between her and God, and she chooses not to show her hair. Now, when it comes to the hair, so according to the halacha, to the halacha, and again, that's the Jewish law, there are certain parts of a woman's body which can excite men. Now, let me give you an example. And I know there's a movement today of people who aren't shaving their armpits and they shave their heads and they, they want to break all the stereotypes of, of the patriarchy or, or people feel that women are have traditionally been dressing a certain way to please men. I'm not going into that. That's a discussion for another time. I don't want to get involved in that. But as a general rule, I think we can all agree, and this is perfectly understandable, that for most men, they would probably feel like if they saw a woman with hair versus a woman who was completely bald, they'd probably be more attracted to the woman with hair. For sure. On that? For sure. Okay. So as once again, there are certain parts of a woman's body that simply can excite men. So the idea is that a woman's hair is private. When a, when a girl is uh, single, she's sort of on the market. She's available. She can get into a relationship, get married, and she, right? Because she's single. But once she's married, we don't want outside men to get excited about this woman. So there are certain things that a woman will do to cover up and to make herself more modest so that the relationship between her and her husband stays special and completely exclusive to each other, leaving everyone else out. That's the idea. But why then cover it with a beautiful wig that could be, frankly, just as attractive? Great question. So... I can't answer that one entirely because I understand. I understand what you're saying. Basically, so I think many wigs are look better than the woman's hair. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But once again, this is a this is a law. Meaning, you not all the laws make sense, right? There's certain laws that you can't understand. So I don't. Let's put it this way: there are many rabbis who believe that wigs should not be worn, and there are many Hasidic women who don't wear wigs. They wear turbans. They wear other uh, coverings on their head. They wear cloth. All sorts of things. And so that they shouldn't show their hair and it's not a wig. There are many rabbis, and I believe the majority of rabbis say, listen, the law is she can't show her own hair. In the Orthodox Jewish Hasidic communities, when you see a woman out there with a beautiful wig, you know it's a wig. And that itself perhaps can be a factor to you saying, you know, that's not her real hair, it's just a wig. Who knows what it looks like underneath? Right. So that that one, that's like, a, that falls right down the middle. That one is can go either way and it becomes, hey, this is the law. You got to make your own call. What, what you want to do is is what you want to do. I watched the uh, the series Unorthodox on Netflix. Did you watch it? Did not. You didn't. Did you intentionally not watch it or? 
What's your, so what's your take on I that? intentionally not watched it, but it's not that I, I intended not to watch that. I simply do not watch any movies or TV shows. So I Unorthodox was also not going to be watched by me. Okay. So this one's interesting for me. You are a very, I, I believe that you are a very gifted YouTuber. I know that YouTubing is new to your life. And I also know that the, uh, the series that you did with Santanello, uh, is his name Peter? Peter Santanello? Peter Santanello. Uh, yeah. Was, uh, I think, I think it's now up over 10 million views or something crazy like that. So a lot of people are very interested in you and what you have to say in your world. So I find it very interesting that the medium in which you're communicating in is not a medium that you participate in. You know what I mean? Where you're not watching movies and TV. Why is that? Well, first of all, I would say there is definitely a difference between uh, movies and TV and YouTube. I am on YouTube. I'm not watching movies or TV. Now, ah. the so there, there is a difference there. It's not that I'm anti-information or anti-technology. It's just that, and I'll explain this to you well, when I was a child, we had zero movies in our home. There was no TV, as in most Hasidic Jewish families. When I was a teenager, I was a curious guy. So I started watching movies and TV on my own whenever I got a chance. And basically, I realized that I had a problem. I could, I could sit down and watch an entire season of, of a TV show in one sitting, and that would be unhealthy. So at a certain point, I came to a realization that I wanted to know that what was playing in my own heart, my own mind, and in my own theater. So I stopped watching this stuff, because not because I'm against it, because I love it so much that if I would continue, it would probably just turn me into a deadbeat who does nothing. So I chose not to watch the stuff. Now, at the same time, there are other reasons not to watch movies and TV. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from watching movies or TV. But when you get involved in the general media, there are a couple of problems. Number one, it's a huge time waster. There are people who are addicted to news. News is important. News is something that can help you in life. You know, if you're following the stock market or for you need to know what the weather is and basic things. But as a general rule, I find that most news does not apply to me or to anybody. And it brings plenty of negative energy into your life. If you listen to the radio or watch TV for an hour, chances are 75% of the things you're going to watch are negativity. Someone got shot, someone got stabbed, a bank got robbed, all sorts of stuff is going on. And you simply do better without all that negative energy in your life. As a third point, I would say that movies and TV are filled with things that I would not want to bring into my life. And I wouldn't want my children or my siblings or my friends to see them either. Um, once again, I'm a married man. You know, all I want is to be with my wife and I don't want to have thoughts about anybody else. And when you're watching movies on TV, obviously we know that certain things uh, get people to watch movies really quickly. So uh, sex, violence, all sorts of stuff that I just don't want to see. And to be surrounded by that and, and consuming that every day would be uh, probably unhealthy in my opinion. So for those four reasons, I do not watch movies or TV. You know, it's interesting. You probably did not see when Oprah went to Brooklyn uh, to uh, to visit the Hasidic Jews. You didn't see that series. I, I think I think I watched some of that on YouTube. Oh, so okay. So it was really, really interesting, and this sort of leads into another area, and then I, then we'll we'll get off this and we'll move on to travel. But there was a question that Oprah asked the three Hasidic women, and she said, "I'm paraphrasing, but what do you?" How do you um, treat someone who's gay in your community? And the three women were frozen. 
and they literally could not speak. And then when one did speak, she said, well, that just doesn't happen here. And so Oprah said, so in the entire Hasidic community, there's nobody who's gay. She said, no, I don't think there is. So that really stuck with me because obviously that there's no way that that could, I mean, this is just my own opinion, but I can't imagine how in a community just demographically that large, that that couldn't exist. Since you're on the cutting edge of sort of like, and I, and I do think you are because you're, you know, you're a new generation of a Hasidic uh, person that is out there sharing what it is that's behind the curtain. How would you answer that question? How is a gay person treated in the Hasidic community? So that's a very good question, a very deep question, and I'm surprised by it, but I'll give you an honest answer. I believe that the assumption or the statement that there are no such people in the community is incorrect. Yeah. I personally do know people who have confided in me that they are gay. Yeah. Um, this, is, this might be controversial, but this is true. So I'm going to say it. They will. They probably will not come out with it. I'm. I'm, I'm almost certain that they will never come out and say that, uh, just because it's. It's. It's very simple. It's not like. I mean, maybe there are other people in the community who feel different. This is the way I feel. Okay, God in the Torah is says that He doesn't want people to be gay, whether you like it or not. That is the truth that is written in the Torah. It's in the Bible. People tried canceling Mike Pence because he believes in the Bible. You know. If, if people want to go down that route, that's fine. They can try. But I think it's important to understand that one of the things about religion is that it comes before all, meaning it's not that I decide what's moral and what's not. There's a higher power who decides. So in my Torah, it says that God does not want people to be gay and to act on these things. Do I have something personal against somebody who's gay? I don't think so. I have... People, as I told you, people who I know, people in my circle who have confided in me that they are gay. This is the truth. Will they come out and say it? Probably not, because in the community, it's not acceptable. But would I treat a person any differently because they're gay? Absolutely not. That's such a great answer. All right, I want to talk about travel. I have not really been somebody that sits and watches a lot of YouTube. But for whatever the reason is, I have become transfixed with watching your YouTube shows. My wife, my wife puts the kid to sleep and I, I, I go and I got a big screen TV and I turn on YouTube and I watch Slimey. And, you know, I come up and she says, are you watching the Hasidic guy again? And I'm like, I love him. I can't stop watching him. He's in Dubai now. He's, he's in, like, he's, he's, he's having lunch with an Uber driver. He's telling a story. And you had recently, I, I'm, I did research for this. So I've, I'm a little bit all over the map where my where my information is coming from now. But you you had described something and you said a lot of times people are talking about Hasidic Jews very much the way, and again, I'm paraphrasing, very much the way somebody in the National Geographic um, documentary is filming a lion eating another animal and then wrapping and, and leaving and not really understanding the landscape of what what's really there. And I thought that's such a beautiful way to explain this because we all we see is what's on the surface. You know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Queens and I was born in Brooklyn. I live in LA now, but when I was a kid, you know, we'd go into Brooklyn. My father grew up in Brooklyn and he's, um, I come from, an, my, my dad's Irish, my mother's Italian and the Italians and the Italians and the Jews, they live next door to each other. 
you know, they're a couple of blocks away. And my father used to uh, get paid during, on the Sabbath. He'd go in and turn the lights on for a nickel, you know, in, uh, in Jewish homes. And that's, that's how he made his money. And so I grew up around understanding that this is, that this is the community. This is just the way it is. But for many, it's so interesting. So you're traveling around the world now, like really traveling around the world. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So when you were 17, you got the travel bug. You took your first trip. I got the, I got the bug way before I was 17. I just started acting on it when I was 17. Okay. All right. So around 17 years old, you take a trip over to the, uh, to, uh, to the Ukraine that you mentioned earlier. What was it that sparked that travel bug for you? So this is a very deep question, something that I've been struggling myself to understand, and I, I don't yet understand that I'm not sure I'll ever understand. There's something inside me that is burning, and it wants to go out there, it wants to understand, it wants to learn, and it wants to teach. And this is, I'm, I'm still, again, I'm still struggling with this. I can't, there's no logical explanation for it. And uh, I've made many stupid choices based on travel, meaning I've, I've spent money that I didn't have to go on trips that I, that I could never afford because it burns in me so strong that I, I feel like I'm compelled to do it, like I have no other option. Interesting. So, so there is, it, there's almost, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but there's almost this spiritual kind of driver that is pushing you out there to do this, to do this work. I, and I really look at it like you're doing work there. You know, you're traveling to places that are way off the beaten path to places, frankly, that other Jews may not feel comfortable with going to. For example, you've traveled to Arabic countries like Lebanon and you did something recently where you went to Afghanistan. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think you can get a gun to my head to get me to Afghanistan. I, I just, and I'm sure, like, call me crazy. I love to travel. All these pictures you see behind you are all around the world. But Afghanistan, not only did you go to Afghanistan, you went to Afghanistan and you were, you sought out the last Jew. Tell me the story of finding the last Jew in Afghanistan. So uh, there's a man named uh, Zablan Simantov. He is, I think he's in his 60s. He grew up in Afghanistan. There used to be a, a large Jewish community there um, in times, in simpler times, before the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and whatever. And at some point after the establishment of the State of Israel, most of the Jews left. A couple stayed. Eventually they died out. And there's one, one Jew left. He lives there completely alone. Uh, slaughters his own chickens so that he can have kosher food. Surprisingly, he's managed to to stick very very closely to his Jewish identity. Wears a kippa in the streets, and uh, yeah, I really wanted to meet him. So I I tried finding him for a while. He's actually pretty hard to get a hold of. Additionally, there's a language barrier because he speaks Dari, which is a dialect of Persian, and I don't speak any Dari. So even if I would have been able to get a hold of him, I'd never be able to carry a conversation with him. But eventually I got the right contacts, people who were in contact with him. And I flew down there and uh, hired a translator and a guide and was able to spend a lot of time with him. Well, listen, you say you flew down, you flew down there like you were going to New Jersey. I mean, you know, like this is Afghanistan we're talking about. Like how the heck... Did you get into Afghanistan? Is like, is it, is it, forgive the ignorance, but is it literally like you picking up the phone, calling an airline and booking a flight or is there more to it? 
So for the flight, yeah, anyone can book a flight to Afghanistan. You do need a visa, which uh, wasn't hard to get. I went to a consulate in New York City, walked in at like 10 a.m. By 1 p.m., I was out with my visa in my hand. And that night I was on the plane. This is amazing. Does your wife say to you, Shlomi, you're out of your minds. You're crazy. Yes, but it's, it's crazy in a good way. So she supports it. She does support it. Uh, my rabbi has told me repeatedly that as long as my wife is supporting what I do and she believes in what I'm doing, I'm going to be safe. And uh, before every trip, I have to make sure that she really wants me to go on this trip and she understands the benefits of what's going on. And if, if she gives me her blessing, then everything will be good and I'll be safe. And it's interesting because I've been asked this question often. I'm asked this question almost on a daily basis by people who meet me and they say, what does your wife think? And I always say that my rabbi tells me that if my wife gives me gives me my bl- her blessing, then I can go on the trip. And she's never said no to, to any trip. So I sort of felt guilty because like I never had a hard time. And I'm, I'm talking about how I always listen to my wife, but she never gave me a hard time. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was supposed to go on a trip and I asked her about it and she said, hey, I'm not, not feeling it. And I already had a ticket booked. Everything was, was ready to go. And I just, I canceled the trip. And now I can truly say that if my wife gives me her blessing, I will go on the trip. If she doesn't, I won't. Wow. You know, I don't know that you realize the celebrity that you're making out of yourself. I, uh, you know, with all the gyms here locked down in California, California is pretty much like New York where everything's, you know, everything's closed. And, New York uh, is opening up. Oh, they're good. Good. We're not. We're still, we're like in communist China here. Everything is shut down. And uh, I work out on the, uh, on the beach because I live, you know, right on the beach here. And uh, this Hasidic guy uh, the other day comes by and uh, he's about your age and he stops and he just has a small, small chat with me. And I told him I was interviewing you and he's like, he had the reaction like I was talking to Jesus himself. I mean, he was so excited. He's like, I know exactly who that guy is. I follow all his stories. And we were talking about you in Dubai, you know, so what you're doing is far reaching now. I mean, is that, is this newfound celebrity exciting to you? Is it exciting? I, I try not to think about it too much. I'm just trying to focus on the work that I'm trying to do, which was, you know, originally it was just trying to pay my bills. Um, I'm also having a very good time. I'm enjoying what I do. And I think it's important for people to enjoy what they do. I've found that it, that I've this is something that I'm just growing into this role, and it seems that God has put me on a mission to build bridges between all people, and I hope I'm doing a good job. If if uh, if that brings with the celebrity status, not very important. Uh, the main thing is that I should continue to do what I hope and believe that God wants me to do. I love that you uh, you recently visited uh, Saudi Arabia. This may be a stupid question, but can you just jump on a plane there too and just go to Saudi Arabia? No, uh, you need a visa to visit Saudi Arabia. I was there twice. The first time was quite complicated. Well, first of all, in in modern history, Saudi Arabia has been a closed country completely. There was no way for you to visit. I remember as a child, somebody told me that I'd never be able to go to Saudi Arabia because they don't allow outsiders in. And I I, I, I thought about it a lot. I used to always say like, I don't like to hear somebody say, you can never do that. It just, it bothers me. And there was sort of a drive in me that wanted to go, but I always knew it wouldn't be possible. Well, a couple of years ago, Saudi Arabia got new leadership. They're trying to modernize the country and they decided to do a pilot. They, they're going to test to see how it works with tourism. So they opened a one-month window in December of 2018 where anybody could come visit as long as they applied for a visa. A thousand people applied for the visas. I was one of them. I was granted a visa. And I spent an amazing five days in the country that I can honestly say changed much of my perspective on life. 
In what way did it change your perspective? So first of all, when I went to Saudi Arabia, it was about two months after the Jamal Khashoggi incident. So uh, trust me, I was terrified. I bet. And I, when I was on the, I was in the, basically I, I was in Israel at the time and I had to get to Saudi Arabia. Um, as I'm sure you can understand, there are no direct flights from Israel to Saudi Arabia. So I had to have a stop in Turkey. When I got to Turkey, I was so freaked out by the whole Khashoggi incident that I decided to cancel my trip and I'm going back home. So I literally went onto my phone. I started looking for flights from Turkey to Israel. I found one for like $125. And I said, you know, I'm just going to book this. I, t- I even texted my wife, said, forget it, I'm coming home. And then at the last minute, I decided to text my rabbi and just run it by him. He had known that I was going to Saudi Arabia, didn't make an issue of it. So I just asked him uh, if he thought I should continue with the trip. I told him that I'm really like, I'm a person who is very in touch with my instincts. And if my instincts tell me to do something, generally I will do it. If my instincts tell me not to do something, I won't. And my instincts were telling me, run like hell. So I was totally not feeling it. The rabbi said to me, if your wife gives you her blessing, go for it. So I asked my wife, what do you think? She said, go. I went. Thank God, once I got there, I had this mind-opening experience where I just realized that you know, when you think of Saudi Arabia, you think of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say violence because there, there haven't been any wars there in, in recent history. There's, you know, there's something going on with Yemen, but it's not, it's not affecting most of the country. But you just think of a country that is so far off, so distant, so close, so mysterious, so frightening, honestly. You know, we're, we're all afraid of the unknown. And then when I got there and I just met nice people and uh, it blew my mind and it changed the way I think about everything. Now, when I, when I have thoughts, because when, when, when we hear about something, if someone tells you about some, some experience or some place or some person, you, your mind automatically goes to this place where it imagines what that's like. And then when you get there, either you're right or you're wrong. But I was so wrong that I've now realized that there are probably so many other things in my life that I'm thinking are negative or evil or whatever. And, and I've come to learn that the world is really much smaller than we think it is. It's uh, much better than we think it is. And when we open our minds and our hearts, we can really, really tap into some amazing things. Yeah, you know, there's there's something about like, you know, when you go through your day-to-day now in New York, you're very familiar with the surroundings and, you know, you're you're going through your community and it's, you know, business as usual. But when you go to a place like you just described, every neuron in your body is on fire and it is just absorbing and taking in and learning and smelling and tasting and, and interact. Like you, you probably have never felt more alive. You're doing a new project uh, called Black, White and Human, which I think is a really fantastic name. Tell me about it. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm surprised you know about that. I just uh, I announced it like probably 12 hours ago. I do my but work. I see you really did your research. So basically, after the series of Peter Santanello, I realized that as with much of the issues that we see in the world, many of them are simply a lack of communication. I believe that if the U.S. political system needs somebody to just walk around the Capitol and give everyone hugs, people need to go out in the evenings, eat tacos, have beers together, and let's work through the issues. We're all just spending time on, on destroying each other, this party, that party, who tweeted this? Who tweeted that? It's so much like we're, we got so caught up in this in this political war that we're forgetting about what really matters. And I feel like if there was more communication, more openness between different sides, 
in all aspects. So in politics, in religion, in business, everywhere, in family, then the world would be a much better place. Now, Peter Santanello's series taught me that the Hasidic community is uh, not creating enough content about itself. There is not enough knowledge out there about the Hasidic community, which is why when series like Unorthodox or the NBC doctors, or nurses, there's a show called Nurses on NBC. Did you see this? Last no. week, they, it was a couple of weeks ago, they released an episode where they portrayed a, it's a reality, it's a, I think it's a, it's a definitely a scripted show. They portrayed this, this thing where a Hasidic teenager gets into a basketball accident and loses his leg, but they can give him a, a bone graft from a non, from someone who's not alive. And basically the, the boy and his father refused to get the bone, bone graft because it would come from a non-Jew or a woman, which is so stupid and so ignorant. And according to the Torah, what would be required to take the bone graft from regardless of who it was that like, it, it's just so silly. And the reason these shows and outside people are, away to get, are able to get away with all this stuff is because the Hasidic community often doesn't stand up for itself and it doesn't uh, create the knowledge and, and there just is no awareness about who we are. So as an insider, somebody who's lived in the Hasidic community but also understands the outside world, I believe that it's simply a lack of communication and we need to bridge this gap by showing them who we are. Don't, why should we let producers in Hollywood show us who we are when they, they literally have no idea who we are? They've never stepped into Brooklyn or to Jerusalem and they simply don't know. They're, they're writing from what they think we are, and it's impacting millions of people. So I'm going to stand up for my community and I'm going to impact millions of people by showing them real stories from inside the community, not from Hollywood. Why name it black, white and community and not like, you know, Hasidic, black, white, you know, you, you get what I'm getting at. What, why'd you choose that name? Well, it's, it's just simply a matter of color. The Hasidic community, traditionally, the men dress in black and white. Uh... And I believe that it's like, when you're looking at black and white photos, you can't really relate. That was a long time ago. Those were, you know, those are the other. It's not us. They're not human beings. They're just black and white. Well, we are very human. Um, and I'd like to show that side of us. So we're black, white, and human. Interesting. In my in my in my white American guy's mind, I immediately went to Black Lives Matter um, when I when oh, I no, thought no, black no, white. Nothing to do with that. Got it. Got it. Okay. I thought you were. I thought you had a whole new platform. Okay. Got it. All right. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you some questions that uh, are going to lean a little bit more personal in nature. Just roll with it. They're fun questions. They're nothing weird. What's on your nightstand? Oh, that's a great question. An alarm clock? And usually whatever I had in my pockets before I went to bed. What do people often get wrong about you? I think that I'm very outgoing and in truth, I'm an extremely shy person. You're a, an introvert, but you're situationally extroverted. Correct. Got it. What is the one thing that if that you have not gotten to in your life, that if you don't get to it, you're going to have a lot of regret about? like to finish the Talmud. It's about, I don't even know how many volumes it is, but it's dozens of volumes. And it, uh, if one, someone learned one page every day, it would take seven years to finish. So that's something I really want to do. What's an unusual or absurd thing that you love that you may not find unusual or absurd, but somebody else would be like, really? You like that? Okay. Uh oh, I got one for you. So when I was in fifth grade, my teacher 
taught us that a very light tinge of the smell of a skunk can be enjoyable. And honestly, if like when I smell a skunk, we're in the car and my wife is like, oh man, a skunk. I'm like, yes, it's kind of nice. That's that is unusual and absurd. And I've got one in my backyard every night that trips off my lights. You know, I got these light sensors and he walks down and we see him. Well, he looks like Pepe Le Pew, if you remember from the cartoons, walking through my backyard. No TV for me. So. Oh, that's right. You don't know that. Okay. Well, you right, better... but, but I definitely do want to come over now if you got a skunk. <laughs> I'll, I'll get a picture and I'll email it to you. And I'll tell you, let me tell you something else. Interesting. When I was, in, when I was 17 years old, I was in summer camp and uh, I woke up one Sabbath morning on Shabbat morning. And I looked under my bed because that's where my shoes were. And there was a baby skunk under my bed. And I ran for my life and we had to get it out, whatever. And then later, somebody who's like really into nature and animals told me that he gave me like one of the biggest compliments I could have gotten. He said, animals can feel energy. He said, if a skunk felt comfortable having like sleeping under your bed at night, it must be you're giving off a very calm vibe. And I thought that was nice. That's a really nice thing and, and very true thing to say for sure. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Deserted island, the middle of the ocean. I find that if people get away from all the distractions in their lives, especially myself, they tap into a, first of all, they get to know themselves. They tap into a wealth of inner richness that they never knew existed and most people will never get this experience to really tap into who they are. And I believe that every single person who's alive today is so full of greatness, but they usually just don't realize it because they're so distracted. So if I could do that uh, one day, a month certainly wouldn't be possible. Maybe one, maybe one day I'll do like seven days or 10 days in isolation. Okay. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about where you used to say, you know, I, I used to think this way, but I don't think that way anymore. Now I think this way. Anything come to mind for you? Most of my opinions probably have changed in the past few years, specifically uh, with traveling. When I realized that instead of, you know, people always tell you the world's a terrible place, everyone's out to get you, they're going to eat you alive. And the world is actually a really awesome place. And uh, people who travel understand it. People who don't travel will never get it. Amen. You got that right. With every new level comes a new devil. What are you currently struggling with? Consistency. There's so much going on in my life. I'm, I'm getting literally, I can't even tell you how many messages I get a day from people who want me to join them on business ventures and they want me to represent their companies. And people just want to reach out to say hi and thank me for what I'm doing. And people want favors and shout outs. And it's it's hard to stay focused and continue to do what I do while dealing with all that, but I'm trying my best. I'm certainly probably going to be disappoint some people just because it's impossible to, to get back to everybody. But I do realize that I'm on a mission. And the number one thing here is to continue the mission, make sure that's running because I believe, I truly believe that if I continue on this goal uh, and with my goal, then the world will become a better place. I love it. Uh, last question. What, what We'll change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? How do you get such great hair? <laughs> Listen, how would I look with a payas if I put that on the bottom? I think you look really good. Would it be a salt and pepper payas? Yeah, that, that could look good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Shloimi, this was even better than I thought it was going to be. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people listening? All I ask is that people open their eyes, their hearts, and their minds to those around them. Try to see the humanity in the people that are 
living in your space, in your city, in your country, people who are across the ocean, see the humanity in everyone. Because if we tap in to the basic essence that all people are human and most of them want the same things, they want to have nice families, pay their bills, and just get on in this world, then you will live a happier life. Forget about what you're going to do for everybody else. You're going to be a happier person because you're going to be, have so much less to worry about when you finally understand the world is full of good opportunities. It's a great place. And uh, love yourself. I love it. Love well, others. Shlomi, thanks again. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.